Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Pesci's Recovery Corner. I'm here today with my friend Cassidy. Um, first and foremost, welcome to the corner. Thank you so much. Um, so Cassidy's a special individual. She's, uh, uh, when she first got to my house today, I, I asked her, how do we even know each other? Like, how did we first meet? And um, I think that we ran in the same circles when it came in the recovery world. And so um, it's it's nice to have you on here. I've been watching you from a distance. I noticed that you are a, a deep spirit, a person that definitely seems to be in touch with your soul. Um, I've seen some of your TikTok content, but I've also just like seen you on Facebook and you talk about the soul a lot. So I want to definitely delve into that. But first, I want to learn you. I want to learn about you. I want people to learn about you and see who you really are. So who is Cassie? Where'd you grow up? Oh, okay. So I grew up in Snoqualmie. I'm like, where do I start? There's so much. <laughs> where were you born? What Where'd you grow up? Me? What it was like? Um, so I grew up in a small town outside of Seattle, Snoqualmie, Washington. Mm -hmm. um, it was gorgeous. A lot of land, a lot of beauty, and also a lot of drugs. A lot of drugs. <laughs> a lot of drugs. Okay. And so um, I grew up kind of with some, I grew up in intensity, a lot of chaos immediately. Like family, what kind of chaos? Like family divorce, uh -huh. um, drug abuse in the family, alcoholism in the family. Uh -huh. And so I immediately remember being a child and feeling separate, different and alone. Uh -huh. So like isolated, depressed, and like I didn't want to be here in this planet. And so what depressed you? Like, did you have f brothers and sisters that were better than you? Was there parents that were arguing? What, what was so depressing? Oh, it was parents that are arguing, a mm -hmm. lot of chaos in that thing. Mom and dad fighting for custody back and forth. Mm -hmm. A lot of like, a lot of uh, crazy life events happened between um, one and three, which is like a, in subconscious. They say that's the most like imprintal phase. So right. that's where a lot of trauma happened. Right. And um, so once I started actually coming into my identity in this world, I was depressed mm -hmm. and did not have a connection to myself. And so right. immediately. You don't strike me as a person that's depressed. I, I mean, you've worked through it a lot. I've worked through it. Okay. This is trauma yeah. work. Very good. Very good. <laughs> um, so immediately I went spiraled into an eating disorder. Um, I was a chubby kid and really bullied for that, made mm -hmm. fun of a lot. Bullied. People made fun of you for being chubby. Yeah. Okay, chubby so kid. that can mess with you. Oh yeah, totally. That can depress you more. Totally, yes. totally. So I felt like I wasn't connected to my body, um, disassociated, didn't know, I didn't really have any identity. And then I didn't have um, the attention that I needed as a child either. So okay. I was just kind of floating off and doing my own thing. I always stayed at friends' houses and kind of like put myself into their life. And I always wanted someone else's life. Mm -hmm. And so middle school eating disorder started. Okay. Um, anorexia, all the things. And I remember just always feeling. Were you bulimic? Bulimic. You were purging. Anorexic. Mm -hmm not eating, hypervigilant in sports. So I just do all the different sports and like kind of, I had like my obsessions already. Right, right. And so I think it was eighth grade, I discovered marijuana mm -hmm. and alcohol both at the same time. And okay. it's like the duo for- How old is eighth grade? Like 11, 12, no, maybe like 12. Oh, 12, 12 yeah. going into okay. 13 right maybe. Yeah. 
and um, and alcohol. And the two together was the dynamic duo for destruction. I also got put on Adderall shortly after that. Right. Um, because, you know, I had all the labels too, the ADHD, the ADD. Did they put you, who put you on Adderall? Your parents took you to a doctor and the doctor thought it was it would be appropriate for you to be on Adderall? Doctor thought it was appropriate. Was that because you were a hyper kid? Because usually they give it to kids to, to kind of calm them down if they're hyper. Hyper, not focused, okay. um, very unattentive in class. At 12, not focused, they were trying to give you this to be able to focus. To be and, able to focus. Okay, okay. And it's like there's all the labels, right? If someone's not like performing at their peak, they don't think like, oh, like what's going on like in child in their of their life outside of home or like what's going in in their emotions. They just prescribe you something mm -hmm. to be the ideal. Right. So that, so it was marijuana, alcohol, Adderall. And then immediately once I got into my freshman year of high school, it was like, I was the life of the party, hanging out with all the older kids, like seniors and out of high school already. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, selling my Adderall on campus, trading it for Xanax, um, trading it for ecstasy and getting introduced Wait, uh, so into So you were selling your uh, Adderall on campus and trading it for Xanax. How old were you at that time? Freshman, so 14, 15, 15, and, and what, what made you even decide that you wanted to do Xanax? Like, what did you know about Xanax? I just wanted to get out of myself. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. I was just this like awkward, I had so much unprocessed trauma um from my earlier days and then the eating disorder too like all the thoughts that it's like the self-obsession right? right so it's like i'm like chronically obsessed with myself and right. i just like and it was like no focus and i just wanted to feel better and so at this point i my whole thing it was funny because i was a good student in high school mm -hmm. um until i left high school but i was a good student so i had all these different I don't know, maybe you could call it the Dr. and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like mm -hmm. I had all these different traits to me and connected to all these different crowds. And then I had this whole other double life where it was like, I always needed to be on some type of substance. Right. And um, I just wanted to escape. And it didn't matter in my freshman years where I really went, because I had potential, I think. I did really good in school and um, I was good in sports in eighth grade. So I had potential to really go two ways in high school. It was either like get my stuff together, do sports, like be this really good academic or go into drugs and partying. And slowly it went like this. And it was just like, it was out of my control. Mm -hmm. It was got to the point where I was like, I didn't care. I was just trying and doing everything and chasing the excitement. And your parents were split up at this time? Parents were split up. Who were you living with? My mother. Mother. And uh, was there any other siblings around? Yeah, I have um, a stepbrother who was my stepdad's son. So he came on the weekends and then a half-brother who is nine years younger than me. Okay, so you were kind of in your own little... I was 100% in my alone. own bubble, alone, in my own like in my own thing i didn't really feel that connected to my family and it's not their fault or anything but right. i i think i needed some special attention you know mm -hmm. and so i just was off in my own little bubble doing my own little thing and i i often would like have friends adopt me you know right. like i would find my friend my family at the time like mm -hmm. my best friend and i just became a part of their family 
and music. You're a musician. When did you first start playing music? Okay, so music has been in the heart space since I can remember. I think since I was like a little, little child. Right. I do remember my mom having this big video camera, you know, the older ones. Mm -hmm. And I put on this blue wig and I would sing in front of it. I was just like this performer and I got my- A lively child. A lively child. Lively kid. Yeah, there's creativity bursting out the seams. Yeah. And um, I always had this idea that I wanted to be an actress and a performer and all of that. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of plays. and I got my first guitar in the fifth grade band. So there was that. And I also didn't have the uh, really push or support to go deeper into studying that. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it happened, I was we, me and my friends were singing in a circle. I think we were in like fourth grade or something. Right. And I was belting out and there was our older neighbor friend there. And she said, you're almost good at singing. Mm. And that went into my- That just so ruined you. It ruined me. I was four years old or mm-hmm. not four years old, fourth grade. And it ruined me. And so it went into my subconscious forever. And then I became very private about singing except when I would drink or something in high school. And then you were just singing freely. Singing freely, rapping, right. all of the things. You were rapping too. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I have some tricks up my sleeve. I, I used to be a rapper myself. I was in a rap group. No way. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should have a freestyle on uh-huh. Who knows? You never know. Okay. So um, then what happened? As you were staying at mom's house like, and doing all this stuff in your adolescence, did you... When did you first get, when did it become a problem? Um, I think it became a problem right when it started. <laughs> um, really? I was fat, right when I drank alcohol, actually. Like alcohol was like, it released all my inhibition. Like I just was like, life of the party, always needed. And it just kind of fueled me to always need to be on a substance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the dark ages though came after freshman year into sophomore year uh describe the dark ages the dark why ages. why were they the dark ages the dark ages, the dark ages. <laughs> that is when oxycontin was a really big thing um i know it was a really big thing in washington mm-hmm. in high schools and i think it was a big thing everywhere and so around what t- what year was this oh uh, i want to say 2007 2006 yeah yeah that's yeah. when the 80s were out yeah that's the 80s so that is uh what got me into everything it was just like i was doing wait before you say into everything so how the hell were you as a teenager getting your hands on oxys if they were supposed to be prescribed. Oh, it was going around our school. It was going around our school, our towns. Um, It was like hot on the black market. So So interestingly enough, like uh, being from Washington, you're from Washington state, Washington's always been known to be a wet, dreary um, area where it's always raining and depressing. And I mean, it's beautiful. It's very, the the nature's out of this world up there, Mm -hmm. especially Plus you can, you know, there's a lot of agriculture and things like that. So, but it's, it's been on the map for years. It's a place where there's a lot of heroin use. There's a lot of heroin. There's a lot of suicide. There's a lot of mental health. There's a lot of homelessness, Mm -hmm. actually. Lots of homelessness. Yeah. I've been up there. I've seen it firsthand. It's bad. We did. I did when another Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, when I did do a semester of college, we studied the homelessness rates up there. And it's almost as bad as LA with which LA is way bigger. So it's, it's, it's really, bad. It's bad. It's really which bad. I think it has to do with the drugs up there, which 
it still baffles me how they're so it's Oregon and Washington, the drug, mm -hmm. the heroin problem it, and the meth and the fentanyl is mm -hmm. like really, really bad up in that area. Mm -hmm. And it must have to do with the weather and the mental health rates and all of that. Sure. So um, during during that time that you're describing, you you started getting your hands on oxys. Yeah. And and uh, you were just taking it in pill form. We were. I mean, it was a thing. I don't even really know how it started, but it was like a hype to smoke it. Okay, and smoking. Uh, yeah, smoking it During off the tin foil. People would smoke. Oxys yeah, they called you, them beans back and, then. <laughs> okay, and you because kids could smoke those pills. I know. Yeah. that they changed the pill over a period of time. They uh, changed it. Uh, they changed it probably so it right when I started was right when it was starting to get changed because I remember you could do things to get it smokable and that's right when I was starting to do it. Like mm -hmm. you can do weird things like microwave it and all of this stuff. Anyways. So it started off as that, mm -hmm. but because what was happening is they were getting so expensive because they were changing them now. So right. it was hard to get your hands on the good ones. Yeah. So right at that time, people started using heroin. Mm -hmm. And before it was, I think it was like people would use heroin like way beyond like do oxys for years and years and yeah. years. Well, I got introduced to oxys and then got introduced to heroin right after that. Mm -hmm. And so once I, I even remember doing heroin for the first time, cause it was like oxys had a different type of, like it was still gross and everything, but heroin was even more disgusting. Like, have you ever done it? Were yes, you I ever have. addicted to it? I've okay. Done. So you yeah. were addicted to it. So but I want to ask you this. Okay. Yeah. Can I, this is something that always goes through my mind. I want cause I, I as you're telling the story, I'm envisioning, I'm seeing your, like, it's like a painting. For, it's like like a, like a film, right? Yeah. Where I, I'm seeing you in that mode. And I think to myself, this is what happened for me. Like, I knew when I was first ever going to try heroin or when I was getting into, like, heavier drugs like Coke or crack. Yeah. The, the thought went through my mind, like, this is all kinds of wrong. Yeah. Did you ever think that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, um, I was already too far down the line right. at that point. Cause I remember after getting introduced to Oxycontin, I actually felt guilty immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew, I knew where it would lead. I like saw all my friends getting strung out on heroin and mm -hmm. I was like, and I still went to the edge. Okay. Um, so you started, so you started experimenting with heroin and what, at what age? Uh, I think it was 15 when I, no, I was 16 when I did it for the first And that time. means because you could, because they were changing the oxys and you couldn't really get the good ones anymore? Couldn't, or couldn't get the good ones, couldn't find it. And all of my friends around me were doing, resorting started, to heroin. Resorting to heroin. And so I remember. It was black tar heroin. It was black tar heroin. I remember too, the night that we got it for the first time, it was like, we're only doing this once. Yeah, because that's what we, we all say. We can't, yeah. we can't find the oxys. So we're mm -hmm. only doing this once. And then I remember doing it, feeling terrible the next day feeling so guilty and i was like i don't even like that like i don't even like it at all i'm never doing it again and a week later you were doing it again i was doing it when you first got it was it obviously when it's black tar heroin which some people that don't know it looks like tar yeah it's like looks like black tar yeah so when you got it did you smoke it yep that's what the kids were doing that's what the kids were doing um and then i also had my adderall addiction had spiraled into an ecstasy addiction had spiraled into loving meth amphetamine mm -hmm. so it was like heroin and meth 
both at the same time. Goofballs, they call yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Not the goofballs, not the traditional goofballs that Bill W. used to do. Yeah. But this was like modern day goofballs. Modern day goofballs. And um, so that combo, it was the, it, it was weird because it kept me in this facade of like, okay, I have everything figured out. I was still showing up in weird ways to certain things. Like no one really, besides I have my, my junkie friends yeah. that I would go and use and, and then I'd go to school and then I had my partying friends right. and alcohol was always very loud and all of it too. Like it was like, I was keeping up. It was with, essential. It was always there. It was essential. It was always there. So I was keeping up with all these different, it wasn't even just one category. It was like all these different things, you know, mm. it was still like snowboarding and like doing all the crazy things while also being addicted and i was able to manage that so you were part. actively up like recreationally snowboarding like up on the mountain and on heroin oh my god it was great well that's when the meth would work the meth would work. okay the <laughs> meth would kick in and you were able to be active yeah so for a while i was able to maintain this facade like everything was okay i wasn't addicted to drugs i was fine and then that lasted like i think that lasted like a year and then by the time I was 17, everything went downhill, mm-hmm. um, left school. Uh, and then I really started experiencing the like physical and chemical addiction. And like, I couldn't go without it for very long. And I was having extreme mental like issues and were you disordered. dope sick? Were you going through withdrawals? Do- dope sick, withdrawals, staying up for two weeks at a time on meth. Like, so that's when everything started crashing. And this is like right when you're about to turn 18? Right when I'm about to turn 18. And then what happened? Then I turn 18 and things go far down the rabbit hole. Um, I. That was, those were like the dark ages. I just, I was fully addicted by that point. So it was like, I was fully out of my parents' house doing whatever I could do to get high, um, living on the streets, living in my friends' houses. Uh, at that time I was getting involved with like people who I shouldn't be involved with, had guns pointed at me, um, had very toxic relationships Mm -hmm. and uh i'm like a child essentially yeah so and then there was also this though um there was also this like beautiful soul that i still would feel underneath it all Mm -hmm. that was like also begging like crying for help because it's like there was a point where i realized how uh there was one point crazy story. And this is kind of when things started to shift for me. And I knew I was getting myself into more than I could handle. Mm-hmm. Um, this dope dealer that I was staying with was now getting involved with the cartel. And um, at that point, like we had like our, you know, like drug money, little bougie pad. Mm-hmm. And um, he got set up and he got robbed at gunpoint. And then I got blamed for the setup because it was from someone I knew, which Mm -hmm. I didn't set it up. And then everyone was after me at that point. And that was when I knew, like, I didn't know what they were gonna do, but I was getting a lot of threats. Mm -hmm. I knew I was in trouble. And so that is when I was like, randomly God like put so many weird coincidences Mm -hmm. because I had a friend who went to a sober living and got sober probably nine months before this incident. Right. And I was um, high and I went and visited him and I met someone there who I had a crush on and he was sober. Mm -hmm. So God sprinkled that in. And then nine months later, I'm at my, like, 
I got kicked out of the place that I was staying in. People are now after me. And I'm like, I'm in trouble. I can't tell my parents. My parents don't really know. I'm like holding this facade. I'm like, okay, I'm in trouble. What do I do? And I remember this guy and I like, I'm like, Hey, are you still in this sober living? Like what? I'm like really struggling. He gets on the phone with me immediately and tells me to go to his house in Seattle, his sober living house. Mm -hmm. I'm strung out. I go to this house. They take me to a meeting and I quote unquote, fall in love with this guy. And, um, they up there, the sober livings are very different than California. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know them. So they let me move in yeah. and I detoxed myself in that sober mm. living. Actually, house. there's sober livings in California where they'll let you do that. Too. Yeah. So yeah. it was an all guy's house. <laughs> yeah. And they put me up on my boyfriend at the time's like bed. It was just a random circumstances. And I like committed to detoxing myself, which was like. So you detoxed off of the opiates and all that? Yeah, it was no, no comfort meds. No comfort meds. So it was almost like a month. It was like three weeks of hell and no suboxone. No suboxone. No methadone. None of that. None of it. So that was pure hell. Oh my god, that was the only time that I was did detox like Mm -hmm. that, and it was like it is. It's like everything's ripping through your whole soul and skin. So did you stop then? I stopped for six months, and that was my spurt of going to college. And you decided, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And then you went to college right then? Yeah. And then you started using drugs again? So I went to college. I started um, a program. And I, I was living in that sober living with right. that guy. And uh, he didn't tell me that he was like bipolar, but um, kind of more of the intense one with psychotic breaks. And mm. um, so I didn't have any knowledge of that. And uh he stopped taking his meds when we were dating and he was on this like very big euphoric thing. And Mm -hmm. I was going to college and I was kind of going to meetings and um, I hadn't done any trauma work or anything. So I was, that's kind of where codependency, I was like very just like school and then take care of this guy. And um, he got really, really, really depressed and I sank into it with him Mm -hmm. and um then he got kicked out of his house because he was like depressed and not unwilling to take meds or unwilling to do something different and mm-hmm. causing a lot of issues. Right. So then we both get kicked out and then we both use and then go on. This What'd you use? Heroin. Back to and heroin. Then meth. Yeah. And then meth. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I Earlier when we were talking before we even started this whole thing, I asked you what places have you worked and you mentioned a place called Brass Tax, which mm-hmm. is out of LA. And then, I asked you if you knew Aaron Apostle, Apostle, right? You said yes. Is, is this when he came up there? Yes. So Aaron Apostle. Um, well, actually, no. I went to my first actual, because I did that one round with no treatment. Right. So then. You went to treatment? I, yeah, I went to treatment. Well, because also, like, this, me and the guy relapsed. Mm-hmm. and um, But he was like, the meth was not good in his neurochemistry. And it was scary. Like, it was getting really scary. Like, mm-hmm. I thought I was going to. Like a lot was happening in this time. So then I am like, I have my first coming to Jesus moment. Mm-hmm. And it was on, I was probably up for like a week and I burnt my finger with the lighter and I saw God or what what I assume would be God. And it was like, okay, it's time for you to get sober. Mm. Go to treatment tomorrow. So I called my mom. They already had it all planned out. And, and you went to treatment. I went to treatment. Up in, in Washington. Up in Washington. Up that borders Astoria, Oregon. 
I think I know where. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then? And then I was there. I left once <laughs> to go back to the guy. You AMA to go to your codependent to relationship. To go to my codependent relationship. And, <laughs> oh, my God. And then we ended up in the middle of the ghetto in Tacoma, Washington. So that's kind of like more of like the ghetto in yeah. Washington. In the middle of the ghetto in this little trailer. And I'm like... I have no idea what is going on by this point. So then I'm like, okay, do a little prayer again. I'm like, okay, I'm willing, like, let's do this. So then I go back and then I'm in lockdown treatment for three months. Up there. Yeah. Up there. Um, not like lockdown, lockdown, but it definitely isn't secluded like, away from everything secluded else. Secluded away from everything else. And it's not, it wasn't like rehabs, how you see them in California. Like where it's like, you get your steps. No, you just, <laughs> you get your phone taken away. You get taken to meetings. That's it. Mm -hmm. There is where I found, um, cause I always like, I had a lot of energy running through me. I had a lot of like stuff happening, the ADHD, whatever you mm -hmm. would want to call it. I just think it's creative life force moving through you without, and then there's like trauma too. So it doesn't have a funnel to like operate mm -hmm. through. So I was, had so much energy, so much going through me. And I had met my first counselor. Um, there was Aaron. And then there was another woman who introduced me to meditation for the first time. So Aaron was your counselor. Yeah. One of them. At that time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And um, we became good friends. Uh, he was friends with my, I found another, I found a rehab boyfriend. <laughs> this uh, was like a common thread. Like, a, a, Yeah. This know. is where the codependency. Definitely a pattern yeah. I, I see here. There's definitely, there's definitely a pattern. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I get introduced to meditation for the first time mm -hmm. and the steps. And uh, I, w it was those old school, like morning meetings with like five people around drinking right. their coffee and mm -hmm. smoking their cigarettes. And I loved it. I was like, this of course is you loved great. It. You know why you loved it? Cause you're an old soul. Yeah, I can tell. I was like, <laughs> It was in the middle of nowhere. There was like no, like no big meetings, no fanciness. Like it was just like, yep, I used to drink a every day. <laughs> a few good old times. Yeah, it was, it was really good. So I loved it. And I just got really into yoga and meditation. And I would like, I became a fiend. I would carve out an hour and a half every day to go into these meditative states. And I would like, it felt like it was everything I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So... Then I got the rehab boyfriend and then moved into the sober living there mm -hmm. uh, in Astoria, Oregon, actually, and then thought it would be good and more efficient if I just moved in with him. And then boom, the codependency cycle starts again. And I completely disconnect from my true sovereign self and everything that I want to do mm -hmm. and start shaping my life to fit into the life of someone else's. And then I got really miserable. Mm. Shocking. But that is also when I got lived in my first mold infested place too. Mm -hmm. So also my health started going out of balance around that time. Mm. Could you shut that door, please? Please. Thank you. Um, so this is what I wanted to ask you. So after all of that happened, that you said mold infested. So you were affected by the mold. I mean, so as we get into like what happened in the future, it's really crazy. But yes, I 
at that time, mm-hmm. I moved into this old, and there's a lot of mold, definitely in ocean towns too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no awareness of this, but I moved into this place and my health started to get imbalanced. Like I started struggling with um, more anxiety, racing thoughts, more so than normal. And uh, and I remember there was this smell to that place. And that's kind of when things really started taking a dive, like mental health wise and health wise. And then my gut got really impacted. So I couldn't eat, I would eat certain things and it would trigger like inflammation or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that, but I didn't know this at the time. Mm -hmm. So, but that is when I, my health definitely made a dramatic switch. And that was like the noticeable marker. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So then what? So then uh, I, I go out. Go out and what? Um, well, first I drink some four locos. <laughs> and then? And then I went straight to, I had this whole covert plan. It's funny that I remember this so clearly. I had this whole covert plan. Mm. My parents were actually up where I was fishing. They mm. like are big fisher people. And I told the, my partner at the time that I was going to go see my parents in Washington. Mm-hmm. So I did this whole covert thing. They think I'm up there doing something else, my parents, and they he thinks I'm down at my parents. So I go down and I literally, this had been after a year of like being away. And I was like, I wonder if my dope dealer has the same number. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I'm just gonna test it. And like texted them and they texted me back immediately. And mm-hmm. then I went on this run. I was actually working in treatment at that time and uh, went on this run. And then in my whole stupor, broke up with the person and blah, blah, blah. And then I came to, like, after two weeks of that, this, like, coming to God moment. I was like, oh, my God, what did I just do? Mm -hmm. Like, I need to go back and get help. And then I went back, and he had relapsed, too. So then we had relapsed together, and that turned into a whole thing. And then we went together to go off to California to Uh get sober. Okay. To a... Was it a treatment center? We both went to separate sober living. So oh, sober living. Yeah. So he went to one and then I went to one <laughs> that was like kind of where like people coming off Skid Row go to. I just was like looking for the cheapest one. It was, was it like, in, in LA? It was in downtown Reseda. Okay. And so it was um, it's something that I was definitely not used to. And I went out there and then I was hopeless. And oh, I crashed my car on the way there. Mm-hmm um flipped it three times in the middle of the freeway so i then did my whole thing of like okay i want to go back home and the partner that i'm seeing at the time too i'm like i'm going back up to washington he's like i'm gonna come too he goes into a sober living up there i don't and he actually stays sober and then i don't so then i'm like Again, using on the streets in Seattle. This time I've burned so many bridges that I don't really have anyone. I don't even have my using friends at this time because they're like, I'm so done with you, you know? Like They were tired of you. They were tired of me. Everyone is tired of me. So then that's where Aaron Postle comes in and kind of rescues me in he Seattle. He did an intervention on you. It was like a soft intervention. He intervened on your life. Yeah. I reached out for help in like a hopeless state weeks before and then just wouldn't talk to him after that because then I was like oh just kidding I don't want the help and he was like oh I'm in Seattle at a baseball game and little did I know he already had this plan for where I was gonna go and I met him at Starbucks and he was like you look like shit uh-huh. and uh he was like so we're gonna 
he like is on his laptop and he flips around and shows me this treatment center is northbound. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so this is where you're going to go for the next. Costa Mesa. Yeah. He's like, you're going there for the next six months. And so, six fucking months. Mm-hmm. He had that all set up for you. Yeah. Wow. Good. Yeah. So that was when everything changed in my life. Cause I got in my car uh-huh. and he grabbed my dope from me. And normally I'd go straight to the dealer and have to get one last fix. Yes. I just got in my car, went straight home and I laid next to my mom on the couch. It was the first time, like we really spent time together in a long mm-hmm. time. And I was like, just take me to the airport in the morning. <laughs> and so I, that was like my surrendering moment. And awesome. Was, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So did you go to treatment for six months? Six months. Did you ever do heroin again? Nope. All right. Good. Mm-hmm. And music was always part of your life. You were still playing a lot. Yeah. So when I got here and I was in Northbound, um, I was getting reconnected to music again. There's a lot of musicians there in mm-hmm. California. And so I was opening and I had my guitar and I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I will do this. And um but once it was time for me to leave treatment, I had to kind of figure everything out really quickly. And so, uh, and like be able to support myself. So I got a job at a mortgage company actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, just went like music was there, but the second I got out of treatment, I didn't really have space for it. Cause it was like sales and full-time program. Mm. And, um, then as i'm going through my steps my awakening starts to happen and uh and then one day i'm like i am like opening and i'm like looking around and working at a mortgage company working like long hours right and i'm like what am i and i was doing good at it too Mm -hmm. like i was like on the phones like yes (laughs) but and my i remember my manager at that time was like because one day i just walked in and i was like i gotta quit and it was after listening to like some type of speaker tapes. It was like the holidays or something. And the whole week, I just listened to these speaker tapes and was talking about like the hopeless state of mind and body and all of this stuff. And I like go in there and I'm like, I'm hopeless in this place. So I'm like just going to quit. And I quit. I like went up to my manager and I was like, I can't do this. He was in the program too. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you are set up to make like 500000 a year if you want in a couple of years. And I was like, I don't care. Like it's not, it's not following my soul. So I can't do it. Interesting. So then I quit without a plan and, um, was just kind of like, what do I do? What do we do? And then that's when I got into the treatment industry Mm -hmm. and I started working at Costa Capri and, um, doing admissions and learning admissions and business development from a really amazing person. Nice. Mm -hmm. And then you went over into, what do you do now for work? So now I do trauma integration coaching and sound healing and um, mindset. So it's NLP, it's neuro-linguistic mind stuff. So it's using hypnotic language to get past because we have our conscious mind, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I'm like, okay, if I have a client, I'm telling you do A, B, and C. Well, mm-hmm. if there's blocks and there's limitations that are in the subconscious mind, you're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to make change by will. Mm -hmm. So the subconscious, you use language to get past the blocks and barriers to shift your mindset. So it's like 
I don't know if you've ever like done any hypnosis or like I've done uh, psychodrama. Yeah, and psychodrama is what actually changed my life. Yeah, and it, that's very similar. I'm sure it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like it is. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's basically changing a pattern and going through delving deep into your past, but actually like getting out of that 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 thing that we have conditioned our mind to think is is what is when it really actually isn't. Absolutely. And then letting go of it. And letting go of it. So that and like psychodrama and gestalt so that's where the guy who created nlp actually took it from that nice and so it was uh it's a coaching method to get you out of the problem mm -hmm. and to stop recreating it um and so but then with my huge thing that we'll probably dive into that happened mm -hmm. and going really deep into trauma work and codependency um through being talk about it what's the huge thing so when I was about four years sober, I actually had like a whole, I was in the treatment industry at this time for a lot of years, I think like three years. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also starting my coaching practice on the side, NLP, and diving back into music. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a friend who moved in with me as a musician and there was this opening that was starting there. And I was like, oh my God, I remember my dream of like doing music. Beautiful thing. And um, and this going through this major awakening, and then I have this complete mental breakdown. And so um I went from being like very positive, happy, elevated state to like not being able to get out of bed, suicidal thoughts, like kind of it was a major depression. Um with like on the edge of like whatever what they would categorize as like maybe a psychotic break um and then severe anxiety attacks like so much was going on and that was after being full functioning like on top of everything mm -hmm. this happened um and it kind of knocked me off my socks and no one knew what was going on no one knew how to help and that's when I went on this quest of like, okay, I need to get better. I need to do whatever I can do to get better. Yeah. Um, and I went through mental health system. I went to a bougie mental health center, um, which was really beautiful, but I got put on antidepressants and it made everything worse. Like everything was getting worse. Worse. Yeah. Um, I started losing like a little bit of eyesight in this eye and, uh, uh, like it felt like a lens like went over my vision and I was having severe panic attacks couldn't sleep or I'd sleep for days at a time mm -hmm. and so then I get sent back up to Washington because at this point I can't do anything and so I get sent back up to my parents in Washington and get sent through the public mental health system mm -hmm. up there and I'm seeing this psychiatrist and he's like it could be bipolar um could be this, it could be that. Uh, I would say it like most likely with your track record, like you have traces of bipolar and puts me on an antipsychotic, antidepressant, Seroquel and anti-anxiety. So that's like four heavy duty meds mm -hmm. just to get me to calm down. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, but wait, there's like my hair, my hair is falling out. Like I'm having issues, like something is happening. Right. And uh, I was like, I think it's health. And then they go and take blood tests and stuff and nothing is showing up. 
And so at this time, I think I'm going completely crazy, but I know something is up. So I'm staying at my mom's friend's house and uh, I'm like completely alone. Like everyone doesn't know what is going on with me mm-hmm. in the program and um, and no one knows how to help. And so it was just me and me and like depending on something greater than myself. And so this was like the deepest, like third step, like the deepest trust of like, there is something greater than me. And so I remember after all of this, um, I couldn't really explain it to people, but my body felt like it was like stiff, like a board. Mm -hmm. I was having severe anger outbursts, severe panic attacks. Mm -hmm. My vision was really blurry. I was getting a lot of brain fog. I couldn't think I was like, couldn't like I'd be on a thought and I would just immediately lose it. Mm -hmm. And so I got on my knees and prayed to, I was like, whoever is out there, like I need help. And mm-hmm. immediately the next morning I was like, stop taking all your meds. So like cold turkey, I don't advise this to anyone, right. by the way. None of this is advice, but this is what I did. I cold turkeyed all these meds and was like, no, because I was just listening to this guidance. And um, cold turkey the meds. And then I heard, get on the computer and look up centers. And so I like filled out applications because at this time, I think I'm just struggling with mental health. Mm -hmm. So I'm like mental health centers. I apply to all these different ones all over um, the nation. And the only one that that very next day, the only one that called me back is this place in Sedona, Arizona, alternative to meds. And this place, it's the only place in the world that does this right now. And um, they take high risk mental health cases and I got on the phone and I told them everything that was happening. I told them my childhood history. I told them my drug history. I told them my trauma. Mm-hmm. I told them my traumatic relationship history. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I also told them like what had happened and what I'm experiencing in my body. And they asked a bunch of questions and they're like, I think something is going on with your health. Um, we have like, they're talking about it. They said, they said that they do a method where they help people actually get off their medications and they figure out the deeper underlying root cause of what's going on. Mm. So I have spent all my savings that I ever had on this whole gamut already. So I take out a loan and go to this place for 30 days, just with the hope that something's going to get figured out. I have no, at this time, like you paid your own way into there. I mean, my mom helped me get a loan. Right. Um, and so it was my only option. Right. And so it was just like, I know I have to get there. So I get there. And at this time, my family's done with me. Right. Everyone is. Everyone is done with me. And so I get there, like, very, like, I remember they immediately put me in to go get, like, a massage. And my body is, like, so stressed. It was shaking after they massaged me because mm. I just was in fight or flight for over a year. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, that is when immediately they we did so naturopathy and functional medicine. Um, they have specific tests. And unfortunately, Western medicine isn't caught up with this yet. Mm-hmm. But they have specific tests to test your gut, to test your inflammation, but to test if fungus is in your blood, to test if you certain bacteria are in you. So I came back 
I mean, so first it was like a month of like figuring things out. And I started at that point getting chronic pain going through my whole nervous system, Mm kind of like arthritis, like, and nothing was getting better. I was actually really sick at this point, like purging a lot and like physically. So something was wrong. And luckily I got there by this time. Right. And uh, they do a whole detox method. So you're in the sauna, you're eating healthy. They kick all the gluten, dairy out of your, and sugar out of your diet. And uh, you go through like a series of tests. So the first 30 days was just taking all these tests. The first one that I got back is that I had high mold in my system and heavy metal poisoning, which already affects your brain. Mm-hmm. And then... We, I was just like, I know there's more. I know there's more to it. So we just kept testing. And by the time the 30 days was up, I was just barely, I mean, like we had started cleansing and everything. So unfortunately, when you start that process, if you're that chronically ill, you'll get sick before you get better. Mm. And so at that point, the first 30 days goes by and I'm like, oh my God, I like don't know what's going on, but I know there's something else. And I like praying again like on my knees, like, help me. Like, I don't have any other means to like afford another month. And someone there actually anonymously went and paid for another month for me. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. I know. So it still makes me want to cry. So, um, it's okay. Whoa. (laughs) So at that point, um, so there's always something looking out, right? At that point, I was like, okay, one more month. And after... You're going to make me cry. <laughs> I know. Because I'm a ball of emotions, too. Most <laughs> cancers are uh, sensitive. Are you a cancer? I am. I'm a Scorpio. It's the yeah. water sign. So um, a week after that person came up and paid for another month, I found out that I had chronic Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. So it was the whole thing. Heavy metal poisoning, mold poisoning, Lyme's disease, Lyme's disease and gut inflammation, like everything, everything, all the foods that I was eating was triggering me. Um, I did not, I could not feel my body. I was in this like absolute state of dissociation and it really affected my brain to the point where I couldn't remember anything. Mm. I was like, it was like early stage dementia, which is um, in the thing for chronic Lyme and mold and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So that, so then that was basically it. Like I did paid all that money to figure out this. And then it was like the real work was getting out of there. And um, I could walk from this place to there and feel like I was going to pass out. So I was very, very, very compromised. Um, And I was used to doing all these higher level jobs and, um, I was like, I can't even do anything. Can't do anything. You're debilitated. Debilitated. But the thing is, is that they don't recognize because it's not really, it's not publicly talked about. This stuff isn't publicly talked about that much. And it's really big. I'm in all these um, different uh, Mm -hmm. things on Facebook for chronic health and everything. And usually if people think it's like mental health and all of this, so they give you all the meds to suppress the symptoms and everything like that rather than going to the root cause. So it's something that's really big with a lot of people. So I'm super compromised. I get a hostess job at this vegan restaurant Uh there and I can barely do that, but I'm just like, okay, I do it. And then I'm like, 
trust fall and I started doing Codependence Anonymous um, because I was learning that like a lot, you know, like I was very like on it, like taking care of everyone my whole life, taking Mm -hmm. care of myself my whole life, taking care of everyone around me my whole life Mm -hmm. and uh, working above and beyond, um, giving myself above and beyond in all my relationships. And there was no space for me. And uh, so then I started getting really deep into in-depth trauma work and um, all of that, and which actually did lead me to studying deeper in indigenous wisdom and Mm. um, with uh, indigenous plant medicine. Okay. So let's talk about that. So earlier when we were talking, and I think we've had this conversation maybe a couple of times, but when I ask you... um, how long are you sober? You said I'm a person in recovery, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is fair. I mean, that's that's you. You're mm-hmm. claiming that you're a person in recovery. That's fine. Absolutely. Um, and then we also, I asked you also before this, like, what don't you want to talk about? And then you <laughs> kind of brought it back to me of what don't we, what shouldn't we talk about? And like I say, like, this is a recovery podcast where we talk about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on who the person is or whatever. Some people will interpret what they believe as being in recovery, recovery. What what I see as my recovery is my recovery. And and I know that like uh, a lot of people that I try to help with recovery, I do it my style from my outlook and what I see. So absolutely. But but I'm not opposed to other schools of thought. And it sounds like you've done some extensive studying and you wanted to learn other ways. Like you're, you're major, like a spiritual being. I just, this is what <laughs> I just know about you Yeah. The, from the little that we know about each other. I asked you, like, how do you know me? Like, how did you even, how did we ever first meet? And I think that you probably heard me speak or something like that, but regardless of the fact something, you know, like when, when two souls somehow, they come together. I mean, all souls are one of one soul. Of right? one soul. Like and and I hear whole. you talk a lot about God. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I love that because I, I myself am now, now am now a believer of God. Like yeah. before I was not sure. I was always uncertain, but I'm very certain in my world that God exists yeah. in, in, in all worlds. You know, yeah. like, I mean, God brought us all where we are. That's what I believe. Um, you you talk about what, what is it plant plant medicine plant medicine now when i asked when you brought up plant medicine before i said well, what do you smoke weed or what you said you don't smoke weed right mm-hmm. and you don't drink alcohol you haven't done heroin and all that stuff yeah when it comes to plant so i brought up ayahuasca that's like where my head goes automatically yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know and you kind of feel like you could be a little bit of a hippie, right? Like maybe, I, I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, I know you like playing music and stuff. You're a free Absolutely. spirit. That's beautiful. Uh, when you say plant medicine, what's the purpose? Of, uh, we're talking about ayahuasca, correct? Yes, we're talking okay. about ayahuasca. In your world, what's the purpose of doing that? Because some people do ayahuasca to really get high. Yeah. And some I've... people do it to go into different spiritual realms. Absolutely. So it was really, okay, so at this point, um, I was already so like, I was so removed from any like Alcoholics Anonymous program because I had spent all that whole time just in torture. And so um, that was something that had been calling me and I have Native American in my blood, roots in my blood. So Mm -hmm. it had been something that was calling me for a while. Right. And um, 
I was intrigued and I'm intrigued in the aspects of what it can do for trauma. And mm -hmm. um, one of my people that I follow is Dr. Gabor Mate. And oh, I know who Dr. Gabor Mate is. Yeah. I, I actually respect and love yeah. him a lot. So I followed him for years and years. And so it was always something that I actually really wanted to dive into. And also um, I was a good like student, a good like aa -er. So it was like this controversy. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I'm now able to like, like I need help. I need to go deeper. And I was watching, I was, and it was another prayer. So it's in this center, um, alternative to meds and they're very like body, mind, spirit. So they're very like, we're going to focus on the trauma because it's all a part of everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, illness starts because of this emotion and trauma, you mm -hmm. know? So it's like, they focus on the trauma. They focus on the body, which is the cleansing. They focus on the spirit. And so in that center, I was like, all right, pray another prayer up to creator. I'm like, okay, how do I unwind this? How do I go deeper? Cause at this point when I'm meditating, oh my God, I had shooting pain from head to toe, like up into here. And like, it wasn't, I couldn't just like drop into a meditation anymore. Like everything was torture. So at this point I'm like, I'm desperate. I'm willing to do anything. So I do a prayer and I'm looking at spontaneous remissions on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So I click on one and the spontaneous remission talks about this woman who is same situation as me, gets hit by chronic health. And then she's like, I don't know what to do. So I go and do ayahuasca. And so I'm like, all right, if that's not God, then I don't know what is. So then I do it. I take it another step further and I do a prayer. And I'm like, all right, if this is creator, you have power and control. If this is up to you, if you want me to go this route, make it easy and effortless. And then the next day, someone random on my Facebook sent me the information that their shaman was coming from Peru mm -hmm. to do a ceremony in a month and all this stuff. I had met this person once and I would just random the very next morning. So I called her and I was like, here's what I'm going through. Like, and she was like, you should talk to him. So he was from uh, Peru, he's a beautiful human. And I felt like his love and immediately he was channeling stuff for me. He was like, oh, like you're going through this. He's like your heart chakra, like all of this stuff. And he was like, and you have a lot of trauma, like I can feel it. And he was like, so you don't have to do anything. Um, this could be an option for healing. This could at least be an option for like finding some peace of mind. Mm -hmm and do your prayer like he gave me for a month like a routines to like meditate do things to get me connected to my spirit again because that's the whole thing is like it was about getting connected to the authentic spirit is what he was saying mm -hmm. um so let me ask you this this is what i want to ask we don't we have a little bit of time left yeah. and i wanted you to play the guitar yeah too. do you think cassidy that with all things considered and all treatments that you've gone to for addiction, for alcoholism, for trauma, because you've had extensive trauma, mm -hmm. do you think that in your life, um, with everything, all the therapy and everything, and all the medications that they, they, they were prescribing you or putting you on, do you believe that you've now overcome the trauma through this a holistic form of medicine? It's not, it wasn't just one thing. Mm -hmm. See, this is the thing. And if you get 
found and mangled so low and it's not the only avenue um it was all things for me so i got i started studying indigenous culture and way of life which is like more than just even medicine it's getting connected to your the earth the roots and everything but through that i found my healing modality which was bee venom and that completely reversed all my health problems it's anti-cancerous anti-fungal antibacterial but it's not just one thing mm -hmm. it's like i wouldn't have been able to do anything with by just doing that it was that plus a 12-step program which i chose codependency anonymous because mm -hmm. that was the one that was like and also beyond that um trauma work and having a trauma integration counselor, in-depth psychology therapist. It was all things because where I was at and where I think some people get is at this point where they're completely mangled. And I was just so willing to do whatever it took to not, because I, I knew I wasn't bipolar. I knew, I think uh, so many mental health things get thrown around everywhere. And mm -hmm. I knew I was struggling with this stuff and it just happened to be a part of the path. Now, I don't think, I think everyone has their own unique path, sure. you know? So my thing is like, I'm very like holistic, well-rounded, like all things it has to, you have to focus on the health. You have to focus on what brings you back to life, which is usually what you want to be doing in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be in your passion. You have to be in your purpose. You have to have appropriate boundaries and you have to, you do have to have a spiritual foundation for living. So sure. 12 step is like, I'm like such an advocate for that too. Like it's all things. Oh, I love, I love your respect for the 12 step world. Absolutely. It saved my life. For sure. Oh my God. Biggest breakthroughs, biggest mm -hmm. like life. I'll never leave the 12 steps. I'll never like, and I love AA. Like I always, that's why I identify in recovery and mm -hmm. I know everyone does have their different beliefs. And so it's even interesting to talk about it publicly, but. I'm just willing to you know, open up and share a different aspect and perspective. I love it. I absolutely. Well, with that said, let's see some musicianship. This is your guitar. You tuned it up. Why don't you take us out with a little song that you got? All right. We'd love to hear that from you. <laughs> 